I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The summer of 2008 was... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Etched in my memory is a time of both innocence and chilling discovery. I was in my room, idly looking out the window facing the road, as the clock struck noon. It was a typical day in the quiet neighborhood. The sun shining brightly and the world seemed peaceful. But then something caught my eye. A movement behind a tree on the neighbor's property just across the street. It was distant, but my curiosity was piqued. I called out to my younger brother, excitedly sharing my discovery, and together we fetched a cheap pair of binoculars to get a closer look. At the edge of the road, we adjusted the binoculars and scanned the area. What I saw through those lenses sent shivers down my spine and haunted my thoughts to this day. It was a face, but it resembled neither a human nor an animal. Its features were grotesque, nightmarish even and it peeked out from behind the tree with an unsettling aura. My gasp of surprise made my brother eager to see for himself. I handed him the binoculars and pointed to the spot where I had seen the strange entity. I can't see anything, he said, sounding a bit disappointed. 
Doubt crept into my mind, but I couldn't let go of the image that had burned itself into my memory. Taking back the binoculars, I looked again. To my disbelief, the creature had vanished from my sight. But as I lowered the binoculars, a chill ran down my spine. It had moved closer, crossing the road with an eerie, almost supernatural swiftness. This wasn't some distant figment of my imagination. It was real and close. Too close for comfort. My heart pounded in my chest as I saw it in broad daylight, mere feet away from us. The Skinman. I could think of no other name to describe the haunting entity that now stood around thirty feet away. Fear gripped me and instinct kicked in. We ran, my brother and I, trying to put as much distance as we could between ourselves and the inexplicable creature. But it didn't let us go that easily. It pursued us, an unsettling shadow just behind, but somehow it stopped right before crossing onto our property. We were safe within the boundaries of our home, but the fear remained, lingering like a ghostly presence. We named it the Skinman, a name that sounded chillingly fitting for something that seemed neither human nor animal. It became a whispered legend among my friends and neighbors, an unspoken caution to avoid venturing too far from the safety of our homes. As the days turned into weeks and then years, the memory of that encounter remained vivid, replaying in my mind like a haunting reel. The skinman became a part of our shared lore, the enigmatic creature that reminded us that the world was vast and held secrets beyond our understanding. To this day, I wonder about the Skinman's true nature, its purpose, and why it chose to reveal itself to us that summer afternoon in 2008. It taught me that the world is far stranger than we can ever comprehend, and sometimes the line between reality and the supernatural blurs in the most unexpected ways. I was in a program that I entered in the year of 1987 called the Job Corps and was near Roseburg, Oregon. One afternoon, about 3 p.m., after working on painting a side of the buildings and my arms feeling quite sore from the same movement of painting, I decided to take a walk alone to the creek that was a few meters away from the camp location. I guess I just needed to take some time away from everyone there. I had many thoughts of the day, and mostly the future days I would be spending there. During the first part of the walk, nothing was very eventful. I never noticed anything unusual. But when I reached the creek and started to find a good place to sit down, I noticed a very foul stench coming of the bend and to the other side of the creek. I thought a skunk had came by, so I decided to move a little further down the bank. Well, I didn't notice at first because I was trying not to fall into the water. But on the other side of the creek, there was a huge animal splashing water around. It didn't see me at first, but I think that it didn't seem to care. I know that there was no fish in the creek because I was told that there wasn't by a person at the camp. I really wasn't sure what it was doing. I thought it was a huge bear, but I told as well that there was no bears in this area. I stood there in between two tree trunks that it did notice me and started to walk into the water. I decided this was a good time to leave and ran out and back on the trail. I was not sure if this creature was behind me or not. I was afraid to look back. I told a few people at the camp what I saw. As usual, no one believed me. 
so I decided to bring a camera with me everywhere I went, hoping that I would capture it on film. Unfortunately, I never seen it after that. I would like to mention that it was dark brown. Maybe due to that it was wet. It smelled musky or more than just that. I can't really say in exactly the right words. It was over seven feet tall. When it entered the water and splashed it so much that if an elephant or something like it was wading in the water. This happened when I was 17 years old. I'm 33 now, and when this event took place, I left Oregon altogether. One day, me and my ex were in my car in one of those cliché lookout spots you take your girl when you want to make out. The area was secluded a couple miles outside of the city. So we're hanging out talking when I noticed a, a large man's shadow pass by in the rearview mirror and disappear into the shrubbery on the right. I'm like, oh shit, and I tell her what's going on, and we're both kind of just sitting there, feeling like we're being watched from the shadows. After being there for about five minutes, I turned the car on and tried driving away from where he disappeared into, but then I found out there wasn't a way out in that direction. So I had to turn back. As I did that, the car's headlights illuminated the shrubbery, and sure enough, he was there. Heavyset bald guy in a coat just standing there looking straight into my headlights. We passed by the guy, his eyes just trained on us, and get the hell out of there creepiest thing ever. So glad I caught his reflection. I was with my parents on vacation at Russian River in California. We had rented a cabin that was probably 10 miles out of a small town. The cabin had a dry riverbed behind it, and one day I decided to go exploring. I was walking along the riverbed for maybe 15 20 minutes when I came across a large and abandoned campsite that was in a clearing. There were five or so old tents with clothes and stuff scattered about. Everything was really dirty and tattered looking, so it has been there a while. I was standing there staring at it, wanting to move closer, but knowing I shouldn't. As I was taking the scene in, I heard a stick snapping the hill up to my right. I whirled around looking in the direction, scanning the tree line but didn't see anything. Seeing as there could be at least five people hiding, judging by the tents, I decided to turn around. I was walking as quickly as I could along the rocky riverbed without tripping, all while occasionally hearing a twig snap or the crunch of leaves once every few minutes over to my left. I kept looking behind me and up at the trees to see if I could see anything but didn't. I finally made it to another clearing where the tree line was further back, and whoever or whatever was following me would have been forced to step into the open, or move why I further away to stay concealed. I took the chance to run the remaining distance as fast as I safely could back to the cabin. Could this be a Bigfoot? I never expected my investigation into the mysterious disappearances along that notorious stretch of highway in Texas would lead me to such a chilling encounter. As a journalist, I was used to delving into stories with an open mind, but what I encountered on that dark and unsettling night would forever change the way I saw the world. 
Armed with my notepad in the determination to uncover the truth, I found myself standing alone on the side of the desolate highway. The night was draped in a shroud of darkness, the only source of light being the distant glow of my camera's red recording light. I needed to gather first-hand accounts, and my plan was to hitch a ride with one of the long-haul truckers who frequented this forsaken road. After waiting for what felt like an eternity, a rumbling engine approached, and the glaring headlights of an 18-wheeler pierced through the darkness. I waved my arms, hoping the trucker would notice my distress signal and stop. The massive vehicle slowed to a halt just ahead of me, and the driver rolled down the window. He had a rugged appearance weathered by countless miles on the road, and his eyes bore stories of the highway that lay before him. Need a ride, partner? The trucker asked, his voice carrying a hint of caution. I explained that I was a journalist investigating the strange occurrences along the highway, hoping he might have some insight. Surprisingly, the trucker seemed willing to talk, although not about the missing persons. Instead, he leaned closer and hesitated for a moment before he began recounting his own eerie experience. It was a few months back the trucker started. I was driving late into the night when I saw something I can't explain. There in the distance under the moonlight was a creature unlike anything I've ever seen before. Intrigued, I listened intently as he described the creature. It was probably about eight feet tall, kind of dark gray with a little brown, he said trying to conjure the image in his memory. It had a mane, sort of like a male lion, but with shorter hair around the body and legs. The most unsettling part was that it was walking upright on its back legs, like a man. I scribbled furiously in my notepad, trying to capture every detail of his encounter. The trucker continued. I tried to follow it, you know, just out of sheer curiosity, but it moved with incredible speed. Before I knew it, it vanished into the woods by the side of the road. I couldn't help but feel a shiver crawl up my spine as he recounted his experience. Was it possible that this mysterious creature was somehow connected to the disappearances? The thought sent a chill down my spine. In 2000, I worked in a branch of Navy that dealt with intel and advanced bio-research. On September 12, 2000, we got word that we were to go on a deep expedition, 329 miles south off the coast of Maui, in search of a supposed sunken fleet of ships that had mysteriously vanished back in the 1970s, but was ultimately covered up from the press. Nobody except certain branches of the military even knew about it. Researchers in that area had detected some very unique sonar signatures that could be nothing but man-made metal objects at record-breaking depths of about 5,200 meters. Before I get too far into the story, let me start with some background information. You should probably use I'm 30, 8 years old at the time of this story. I had just got out of the Navy after serving for six years, having already gotten an early discharge because of my outstanding service. I'm only sharing this with you because I want you to know that I'm very intelligent, and I know this story is going to sound outlandish to a civilian like you. I'd been stationed on the USS Glacier in Antarctica for two years, and when I finished my tour, I was assigned to the U.S. Navy's underwater bio-research lab. 
I had a position parallel to a few members on the team. I was officially their security officer, but they had me doing anything from feeding the dolphins to recording and entering in data. I basically had free reign at the lab, which was not a normal thing. My career in the Navy was built on my knowledge of wildlife, which is why I was assigned to the Antarctica mission, where I did a center service that I cannot talk about what I did. I guess I would better get to the story. A few months before our mission, I was assigned to escort a scientist who was gathering water samples for research. I didn't like the guy because he had no regard for me or my time, and when we were coming up to the port after a few days at sea, he failed to reattach the anchor line, and we drifted out too far away from our ship. I had to call in divers for that ship to hook us back up. The scientist was humiliated, and I didn't care much. We got a distressed call from our sister's ship, the USS Berg, around midnight, which was two days into our expedition. Before we could even get to the area, apparently a man had gone overboard, and the Berg had lost visual contact with him. They sounded off the alarm, and twenty of us immediately began to scour the area for any signs he was missing. For about an hour, when he showed up at the surface, he was in a state of shock and wasn't talking much. One week went by, I guess, before he could speak in complete sentences, but during this time he developed a sudden illness that progressed to the point where he was unable to speak altogether. He eventually passed away. We still don't know why. The research we were doing off the coast of Maui was meant to identify and locate these three ships that had vanished in the fall of 1972. They were now believed to have sunk in this perimeter. My job was to lead a small team into the deeper sections of the ocean with high-resolution sonar equipment, which required me to be on a submersible vessel and locate the crash site. Our team got out to the location at hand and began our submersion. The type of vessel we were in was a small sub capable of holding no more than seven of us comfortably. The maximum depth it can go was roughly 6,500 meters, but the only thing we were interested in at this time was right around the 5,200 meter mark. That's where our equipment was getting a reading from, so we all knew or speculated that this was the hot spot. The sub was able to travel at speeds of up to five knots, and we had a large sonar array that could detect objects up to 500 meters in front of us. We began our descent. All of us on board were pretty ecstatic about our findings and that everything would be grand once we got deep enough to trace the location. That was until we got roughly to the 4,300 meter mark. At this depth, we lost all of our forward scanning abilities, and that was the first time I felt uneasy about this whole thing. We started to slowly sink. Our systems were malfunctioning and there appeared to be some sort of electronic interference with our equipment. How could this be possible at such depths? There was no way that our signal could be interfered with at depths like these. To make sense of something so strange, our front lights were operating the entire time. But some of our systems were alive and active, but our propulsions were not operating. After some success of maybe 30 minutes, everything seemed to be operating smoothly again and we continued our descent down to around the 5,200-meter mark where the ocean floor rested. We had finally arrived at the required depths, and we were now thoroughly scanning the floor for any sign or trace of the wreckage. 
We were in the vicinity of where our equipment was leading us. Now, this is where our story changes from one of exploration to desperation and danger. We get hit yet again with another wave of electromagnetic pulse, shutting down our entire system, but yet again leaving only the very front lights of the ship. These were casting lights several hundred meters in front of us, but our internal lights began malfunctioning yet again. We're trying our best to keep our cool and not to panic. We were now slowly descending until we crashed onto the ocean floor. Unfortunately, we were only maybe 20 meters from the ocean floor, so landing didn't really do much damage. But now we're sitting ducks. In a brief moment, this massive wave smacks into our ship with so much force, it hits us and causes us to topple several meters in the air broadside. We panic on top of trying to regain ourselves. We felt helpless but to wait for the right moment. We had no propulsion capabilities, and our sonar equipment was down and going wacky. I remember thinking to myself what made that giant wave down here. The movement in the water was so sudden, and my mind went to a place I did not even want to acknowledge. For a sudden force of that nature to happen would have to have been made by something of substantial size, meaning a large life form. I heard a sudden scream from my team. I turned and looked and there fully illuminated by our spotlights was this. Ah, what I'm telling is like straight out of a scene from Godzilla or something. This massive eye is staring back at us, and just then it quickly moved upwards, and as our lights are shining on it, we can see it's attached to something colossal in size. But due to the size and force of this thing's sudden movement alone, we are hit with yet another wave, knocking us back even more damaging our systems, sending us flying and toppling all over. Some of us fell unconscious for a time, but we tried everything we could to get the ship back going. Our internal ship's core was now failing after taking the damage from getting banged so badly. I tried my best to radio to the surface, but it was dead. Our sonar was still down, but our systems would intermittently flicker on and off for brief functionality. I know in that moment I needed to do all I could to get these systems back going. It's as if we had been getting hit with waves of electromagneticism, as if this life form we had encountered was like that of a colossal-sized electric eel. In a way, the sonar was now back online, but it had been damaged. I can remember hearing a high-pitched signal come from it before it completely failed. I know this will be hard to believe, the sonar was now working, and the radio began working just briefly. I frantically radioed up to the surface, letting them know there was something down here, screaming at them, and we were aborting the mission. The sub was able to pull itself from the wedge of rocks it was up on, and we were beginning to successfully make our ascent back to the surface. That's when I got a reply from up top, and they told us, You are to continue on with your mission. The tone of their voice was commanding. I don't remember much after that, but I do remember failing to continue with the mission against my own will by forcing myself to stay awake from the lack of oxygen. Much of our internal systems were still glitching, and I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to make it to the surface without the systems failing and us sinking back down again. We reached the 4,600-meter point all before our internal systems began glitching out yet again. We pushed harder and harder to press onward, when at about another 200 meters, 
our systems turned off, failing us yet again. Our impact on the ocean floor had now severely damaged our vessel. We were now free, falling down to the very bottom of the floor, roughly a thousand meters below us. Slowly, this is when I realize we're going to die. We were already limited oxygen, and we would not withstand very long. We're sinking quickly when we get hit with yet another wave of current from what I could only assume to be the large life form we had seen that shot out twirling down into the bottom of the ocean floor. This impact knocked all of us out. Oxygen was now depleting. We were going to die. I lost consciousness. I cannot tell you how much time had passed, but I woke to our vessel slowly ascending in the water. We were being propelled up by a large sub-vessel that was taking us up to the surface. It turns out the ship above us had sent a vessel to come get us, and was able to reach us just before we ended up dying due to oxygen deprivation. That's not to say we didn't endure long-lasting problems from having that much lack of oxygen. We were brought to the surface and treated for our injuries, and, of course, reprimanded and questioned why our duties were not done why we failed to complete orders. I briefly informed them what had happened down there to all of us in the mission, but it was not worth our lives. We were also let go with strict word not to speak about anything we saw, the location of the vessels, the site, or any other sensitive information that they would deem. We were forced to sign documents and lots and lots of paperwork. I've been wanting to tell my story for years, and I think it's about time. I'm submitting this to an anonymous database so whoever gets this can unveil it for the record. My age has changed, and important details about my life, like the years in service that I was in, have all been altered to further protect my identity. While the information in this story are real events, my background and other information are just placeholders. I hope whoever reads this understands. In the summer of 2020, specifically in early July, I found myself along Lake Erie in Erie, Pennsylvania. It's fairly densely populated, and it's not rural. I briefly lived with a friend after my divorce in the Westminster neighborhood. There is a large park called Asbury Woods. Some of the trees are so old and tall that they can give you a different perspective on life if you let them. There are several paths you can follow. Although it can be crowded on some days, most of the time when I was there, I was the only human. The place almost takes you back in time, if you can understand that. I've read about people seeing strange animals and flying objects who report feeling odd at the time of their sightings and experiences. Some call it the Oz effect because people suddenly feel like they aren't in Kansas anymore. Figuratively speaking... Nothing like that happened to me, though I'm not saying I reacted calmly. My heart raced when I saw what I described as a dogman or dog-headed man. I felt panic for some time. I put some distance between myself and the beast. However, it was comparable to what I might have felt if the same situation were reenacted. I'm here to tell you what I remember about that incident. However, I feel it's imperative to note that I have been trying for literally years to explain this sighting away. I am extremely unhappy to have been unable to disprove my own observation. I'd like to debunk it. 
So I used to stroll through Asbury Woods a lot in those days, always alone because I was still emotionally recovering from my divorce. I walked on the same path I had taken three or four times before. But something about this time was different. I could hear someone or something walking with me in the bushes. It was a sound I had not heard before. Then suddenly, out of the bushes appeared a man over seven feet tall. He turned, and our eyes met. The strange, glowing eyes stood out to me. The two glowing orbs were in the middle of a giant dog head staring back at me. Those menacing eyes were above two rows of giant, yellowish fangs. They looked like they belonged in dinosaur skeleton mouth at the Natural History Museum. This was not a man. Within seconds, the creature was on top of me, and I was on my back looking up at the beast. It leaned down with its canine snout sniffing at me from head to foot. I tried not to move. I'd never been that scared before, as that thing only needed one bite to end my life. I braced myself for the most pain I'd ever felt when someone or something whistled at a barely noticeable volume. I might not have noticed it if the dog-headed beast had not straightened up the second the sound hit the air. Nothing seemed to matter to that dogman as much as that soft whistle we had both heard. It located the sound direction in a second or two, and then I was abandoned as it burst off into the woods. That was the extent of my encounter. I have tried to tell friends and family about my horrifying account, but they refused to believe me. I contacted local animal control, as well as the Pennsylvania Game Commission. I never received a response to my inquiry. Right after I graduated from college in Colorado, I was hired by the National Park Service. I soon relocated to eastern Tennessee and started working as a ranger in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Since I was newly hired to the job, I was assigned to patrolling and routine safety checks. This allowed me to roam around the huge and beautiful park. A few weeks into my employment, I received a call reporting unknown animal tracks and activity all around their site. When I got there and saw what was there, I thought one of the other rangers was screwing around with me. There were tracks, but they were not recognizable. The tracks were human, shaped but huge and with talons. I checked out the area and took a few photographs and then helped the family get to another campsite. I later turned over the photos to my supervisor, expecting him to laugh and come clean on the joke. But instead, he was upset, thinking I was playing a prank. I asked him to accompany me to the site, but by the time we could get out there, the rain had washed away the prints. A few weeks later, I received another strange call. The campsite had been completely destroyed. The tent shredded and everything trashed. The campers weren't there at the time of the incident. There weren't any footprints observed since it was in a dry area, but I found two tufts of brown hair and fur on the ground. On this occasion, my supervisor saw the destruction for himself, but recorded it as bear activity. The fur and hair didn't look anything like that of a bear. Two months later, in early September, I received a call about a lost pet. The young couple had been walking their dog, but it slipped off its collar and ran into the woods. They were very upset about the lost dog. Myself and five other rangers were told to search the woods and recover the dog. We started our cirque in three pairs. 
After we walked for hours covering the area, we didn't see any sign of the dog. It was late in the day, and we hadn't received any other calls. We agreed to stay out until dark before returning to the parking lot. As the sun set, we turned around and headed for the nearest trail. There was only another half hour of daylight remaining, and we felt sorry about not finding the dog. But there was nothing else we could do. As we walked on the trail heading back to the parking lot, we heard growling sounds. We had bear spray with us if we needed it. It was almost dusk and harder to see. We couldn't identify the source of the sound. We continued walking, hoping to leave the bear behind. One of the other rangers pointed out a tree that looked mauled. There were huge scratch marks and missing branches, like a black bear would do. I used my flashlight to look at the tree base. There were the same huge human, like footprints I had seen several months before. These prints were definitely not from a bear. I told the other rangers about the clawed footprints I had seen previously. The look on their faces was chilling and their apprehension was obvious. As we discussed the prints, we heard crashing and grunting sounds nearby. We kept moving, but faster. I twice saw a dark shape run past us to our right, but the trees made it impossible to see what was in detail. The other rangers noticed it as well. It was very bulky and tall, which concerned each of us. Then, without warning, the creature lunged out of the woods onto the trail about fifty feet in front of us. I could see a dog-like face in the twilight as it loudly growled. All six of us scattered into the surrounding woods. I tripped on a tree branch and hit my head on a nearby tree. I was dazed for a few minutes, but I kept my eyes open in the hope this creature would not attack me. Several minutes later, we called out to each other and eventually gathered back on the trail. The beast must have run off. We didn't hear any further growls or crash sounds. We quickly ran along the path and arrived at our trucks in the parking lot. We got in the trucks and drove back to the ranger station. The next day, each of us was told to write a written report about our search for the dog. I recorded exactly what we encountered and, as far as I know, the other rangers did as well. But our supervisor never mentioned the incident again. By the way, the lost dog was found unharmed two days later. I am Jack River, an elite member of a special forces team, trained for the most challenging and dangerous missions. One day, my team and I find ourselves in Kosovo on a mission to prevent the illegal sale of uranium to Iran. As we made our way towards the secret enemy facility, our hearts raced with the gravity of the task ahead. As we approached the facility, we came across a small village that seemed eerily deserted. The air was heavy with an unsettling silence. Our instincts told us to proceed with caution, and as we draw nearer, a horrifying sight awaited us. The ground was littered with the remains of at least a hundred people, victims of an unfathomable massacre. Yet something was peculiar about their wounds. They appeared as if some wild animal had attacked them, leaving gruesome and savage marks. We began inspecting the bodies, trying to make sense of the horror that unfolded in this forsaken place. And then, out of nowhere, we spotted a creature like none we have ever encountered before, materializes from the side of the hill. Its huge form seems insubstantial, as if it were a ghost. 
We can see the grass beneath its body, and it moves with an otherworldly grace, leaving no trace on the ground. The creature is covered in longish, charcoal-colored hair, giving it an eerie and ominous appearance. Its eyes are two long slits that emit a haunting, bright red glow. Instead of a typical nose, there are two holes, and its thick lips curl back to reveal sharp, menacing teeth. Standing at a staggering height of over ten feet on its two legs, it exudes an aura of primal power and ancient terror. Frozen and bewildered, we stand... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And in awe and confusion, trying to comprehend the existence of this creature. But before we can react, it lunges at us with surprising speed and ferocity. A fierce battle ensues as we fight for our lives against this seemingly supernatural foe. With our automatic rifles, we unleash a hail of bullets, determined to bring down this mysterious and deadly adversary. After a grueling and desperate struggle, we manage to bring the creature down, but we had little time to inspect its lifeless form, for the sound of our battle has alerted the local militia. With no choice but to abort our investigation, we called our base for immediate extraction. As we are airlifted to safety, we tried to comprehend what we have just witnessed. It is a sight and experience that challenges everything we thought we knew about the world. In disbelief, we recounted the events to our superiors, struggling to find explanations for the horrors we encountered. From that moment on, we carry with us the haunting memories of that fateful day in Kosovo, where our mission to prevent the illegal sale of uranium was overshadowed by a chilling encounter with a creature beyond our understanding. I worked as a microwave field surveyor. Basically, we made sure there were no obstructions, large buildings, trees, smokestacks, that could block the signal transmitted between towers. I typically worked three weeks on, one week off. 
On this particular month, I had been sent to Pennsylvania. Most of Pennsylvania is great, but every state has its creepy low-population areas. I was assigned to survey a 35-mile path between towers in the state game lands, large protected areas. The key to surveying a microwave path is finding the critical points where the signal comes the closest to the ground, us usually a mountaintop or hill. In a city, this is fairly simple. You can just drive a few blocks and take measurements. However, the remoteness of the towers made access difficult, and the roads I tried to use were sometimes rutted. Trails at best. The GPS program Delorme kept sending me down dead ends or onto trails called Abandoned Road or Old Mine Shaft. This was actually pretty funny at first. At about 7.30 p.m., I was getting nervous. It was getting dark, and I hadn't seen another car or even a parked hunter's truck in five, six hours. My GPS was spotty, and I wasn't sure if I could honestly remember the way out, at least not before total dark. I found the widest trail I could and began to work my way south, hoping to hit a major road. I was forced to double back northeast by another downed tree on the path. It was very dimly lit outside, and with so many turnoffs, I can't be sure I took the same way back. That's when I came across the little village. Eight small cottages. They looked like remants of someone's camp from the fifties. Sixties. Two burned almost to nothing, the rest with the doors swinging in the wind. No one around. No track. Nothing. I feel a little silly writing this. I know that I was just tired and hungry at the end of a long, isolated day. But it felt like something was watching me from inside those little cottages. My X-Files or Hills have eyes. Sense was tingling, so I got back in the truck and roared out of there as quick as I could. Our company finished the project, and I haven't been back since. So, these events happened when I was in the military. The events in 1979 were so bizarre and so chilling to the men involved that nobody has discussed them publicly, at least not yet. I have been asked not to discuss them. This is the only place where I can tell my story, so here it is. I served in the United States Army from 1978 to 1986. During that time, I was stationed at the Tesla Air Base in Tesla, Bosnia, formerly part of Yugoslavia with the 10th Infantry Division. I was a chemical decontamination specialist, which meant I would go out on patrol with the line companies and decontaminate the soldiers and their equipment after they were exposed to chemical warfare agents. I was trained to do this using the M258A1 decon kit, which I carried on my back. It weighed roughly 150 pounds. This thing wasn't small or light to carry. It was a workout. In 1979, our platoon sergeant called us all together and said we were going to participate in a special mission. We were excited as anything that breaks up the day. Today, monotony of guard duty and drills is welcome to soldiers regardless of their rank and position. We were already a pretty tight unit. So we were happy to do whatever we needed to for our fellow soldiers. The platoon sergeant pulled out a map and showed us where we were going. The island of this, a small Croatian island in the Adriatic Sea. 
We were informed that our mission was to conduct reconnaissance on this and that we would be inserted via helicopter to scout the island and make contact with whatever forces were already there. We were told that we would be inserted on the south side of the island and be picked up on the north side. That night we boarded the chopper and flew to this. We were inserted on the south side of the island near a small fishing village, which was mostly abandoned at this time due to military presence. There were some inhabited houses and a small church with a cemetery adjacent to it. I'm not sure what that church is, but I do remember a large cross atop its steeple. The pilot said the locals would not approach the island, at least this section, rumored to be cursed, although I don't believe that. We walked about a mile to an area where we could dig in and set up observation posts, otherwise known as OPs. We dug shallow fighting positions and set up a central OP on a small hill overlooking the town. My friend, who was a specialist for in my unit, and I decided to set up our OP on top of a large rock overlooking the area. We were able to construct an uh, owl frame out of some smaller limbs and camouflage netting. This way, we would have some protection from being observed. My friend said he had a bad feeling about this mission, but I laughed it off. I knew he was a little off, but not many soldiers are comfortable with being shot at, so I thought this apprehension was due to the amount of lead in the air when we were fleeing from Kuwait. We set up our OP, camouflaged it, and laid out our MOPP gear in case we needed to go chemical anytime soon. We had our gas masks, chemical protective suits, MOPP suits, rubber boots, chemical gloves, and of course our M250A one-decon kits. We watched the town through our scopes for about an hour, and we began noticing what we thought were Yugoslavian soldiers moving around. They were dressed in uniforms similar to that of the Soviet era, but it was different. They even had the red stars and caps. They were at the far end of the village nearest to us when, without warning, they began running towards our OP. I grabbed my M16 and told my friend that we are going chemical. I grabbed my mask and there was a bright flash of light. When I could see again, the soldiers were gone. My friend and I looked at each other and realized we both experienced the same thing. We decided to go check it out. There was no sound, nothing. As I looked at the trees under which the soldiers had been, I noticed that there was a light shimmer in the air where they just passed, kind of like a mirage, like the air or time was moving. It looked very strange. My friend and I were about 75 yards away now from our own OP, and we saw something moving against the rock face. We froze and stared at it for a little bit until we realized it was some sort of lizard. The thing was black about five feet tall, with a tail that was closer to that of a crocodile. It had a very large head and was holding its body close to the rocks as it moved slowly. It was in a crouching position, and you could tell this was a bipedal being. It seemed to be looking for something, but I have no idea what. We continued back towards the OP, and we heard a sound we could not describe, but can only be said to have sounded like several people screaming all at once. It lasted for just a few seconds, and then there was silence. We approached our OP, but it was completely empty. 
We had left our rifles behind in the A-frame when we went to inspect the soldiers. We moved back to where it was, and when we got there, all that remained were our helmets, which had fallen over on their sides with the tin straps still buckled. We didn't think this was possible. We had secured our helmets to the uh, A-frame because we know the enemy enjoyed booby, trapping our equipment. My friend and I went back to our OPP. We searched for what was left for about 30 minutes. As soon as we reached the edge of the vegetation, it seemed to me that something was out there in front of us. As we walked closer, I realized that there was a group of bipedal creatures, roughly about the size of humans, standing just outside the vegetation line. They all appeared to be wearing some sort of suit covering their bodies. There were roughly nine of them, all standing together in a group. They were acting in a very strange manner seemingly looking back and forth between my friend and me, with their heads moving almost like that of a bird, very cockeyed, as if they were viewing something from far away. My friend and I kept looking at each other, wondering what to do next. We began to slowly back away, but before we could take any more than a couple of steps backward, they walked in our direction, and they were moving fast. It was clear they were agitated in their motion, and just as they were getting closer, Another flash of light that blinded me once again. They were gone. At this point, we retreated back towards camp, waiting for the sun to completely come up. After we had made our way down the hill and back before very long, we noticed there was smoke coming from the distance. We decided to change our course to see if somebody needed help. As we began to move closer, I realized these were two separate fires. We stood and watched them for a while. After about ten minutes, we saw movement. There was a light shining down where the flames were, and what looked to be the same creatures that we had seen before. They seemed to be directing the fire somehow. I thought that it might have been the same group, but my friend pointed out that they all had different colored suits on. He said that some had red, others had blue, and there was even one that had green. We stood and watched them and we realized they were not alone. There was another group of them moving around in the vegetation, but they looked like humans wearing bright green camouflage. This group eventually moved into the light of the fire, and we could see they were carrying weapons. But one of the human-looking ones walked up to a tree and kind of did something with his hands. The tree lit up and began shooting out a beam of light from its trunk. The creatures slowly stepped back from it all, except one, and engulfed in this beam of light. We realized this was some kind of teleportation or doorway. So we very quietly backed away and ran back to our platoon, reporting what we had seen. I want to emphasize that the following is purely speculation, but after doing some research, I've come up with what I believe are some very valid possibilities. The first set of soldiers we saw were actually these reptilian beings, but disguised as humans, in some sort of cloaking form. Let me share with you some information I've gathered. There are three main races of gray aliens known to abduct humans or perform experiments on them. One of them is known as the Zeta Reticuli, discovered in the 1950s by an amateur astronomer. The other two are reptilian, also humanoid and insectoids. They are often races referred to as Nordics and Greys. Nordics are usually described as being humanoid in appearance with pale white skin and blonde hair. 
Insectoids can be the average human being's height, if not more, and are primarily humanoid, insectoid beings. The most common are mantids humanoids. The fire they were controlling looked like some sort of portal when the beam shot out. It was like a teleportation device. I believe that these beings could be experimenting on humans in order to try and create an army to use against us. Maybe they are trying to use the humans in some sort of fighting force. I don't know. It is possible that this might be some sort of retaliation for the Vietnam War. The person who I was with during this, who was also my co-witness, passed away from cancer many years ago. I lived in a rural area when I was around 12 years old. Our neighbors were like five minutes driving away. And behind our five acres of land was all crown land but not owned by anyone. As far as I know, this land went on for miles. I loved going for long hikes. Sometimes I'd go out with the family and we'd be gone for good four or five hour walks deep into the forest. I went with my younger sister, Abe, and her friend one day in the fall. About three half hour into the walk, we get a little turned around, found a new trail, and don't recognize any of our usual trees. Sun's still up for a while, so we keep going. Suddenly we hear a four-wheeler, but it's getting closer. We encounter an older man with two axes on his four-wheeler and a vicious dog. He was very rude and suspicious of us being there, told us we were on private property and had to leave now. He was almost yelling and clutching an axe the whole time. We agreed and apologized and left. We heard him drive off the other way. We decided to run because he was creepy and we were hours away, with no adults or ways to contact anyone. We take an alternative route to cut time down, so we're no longer on that path. Shortly after we hear the four-wheeler close again, we freeze atop a little hill or mound and listen. Four-wheeler guy comes into Vail on the trail we were on. He drives down a ways and trunds around a few times. I know he was looking for us. When he's finally far enough away, we book it. Made it back in about two hours. Terrified. Checked with mom or dad and knew one owns land back there. He wasn't any of our five neighbors. We weren't allowed to go for hikes alone anymore, and my sister's friend was afraid of the woods after that. Realistically, he was just some pot owner guarding his crop, which is equally as scary, because where I lived, if you stumbled on a crop, people shot first and asked questions later. Cody, Wyoming, midnight. I just finished a very long day at work. I am a medical courier, and I am regularly on the road, staying in hotels, and life is never dull. This particular evening, I wound up on a 500-mile drive that ended in Cody, Wyoming, at around midnight. It had been cold. It was December, after all, and this is Wyoming. The roads had been very so, so that night they weren't clear, but they weren't treacherous. It was one of those drives in the dark where you were on edge the whole time. Staying alert for 500 miles in the dark on roads that were nearly abandoned at this time of night with light snow and heavy winds. It takes a lot out of a person. This particular week it had been very busy. I had been in four states that week by the time I reached Wyoming that evening. 
The drive to the patient's house was up a windy, slick road, and the drive was uneventful. After I had dropped the medicine off to them and called the boss to let them know I'd made it in and was heading to a hotel to get some sleep, pretty usual conversation, we talked briefly about how much they would reimburse me for the hotel room. They always say $80. $100, it's pretty typical and fair, since the cheap hotel in Cody, Wyoming is about that price. I, however, am 30, wanting a good night's rest, a good free breakfast, and a nice... I'm soaked in a hot tub of requirements for when I catch myself in a hotel room. I know that by the time I get to the hotel, I have put on serious miles, so I treat myself one because if I am staying in a hotel, it has been a profitable day, and I can afford to treat myself just a little, and two, I feel better after a good night's rest, a great breakfast, and a nice soap. I will not name the chain of hotels I stay at, but I frequent one chain because it's the best value hotel in my hometown, which is back in Nebraska. Tonight I pulled into the hotel, which I have stayed at three or four times now, so I am familiar with the place. I had called ahead about eight hours before when I was leaving Denver to call and book a room and let them know they would be expecting me at midnight. I walk into the hotel with my bag, dusting off the snow that had fallen on me while I got my stuff out of the car and walked inside. It's very quiet. There's no music and the TV isn't on in the lobby. I wander to the counter, leaving a trail of wet shoe prints behind from coming in out of the snow into the lobby, my shoes squeaking as I approach the counter. When I get to the counter, there is no one at there. On the counter is a bowl of ice cream with a brownie from the restaurant connected to the hotel. The local paper is open to the comics page, and the sudoku is half filled out with a pen sitting there. Hanging on the back of the chair is a small lady's coat with fake fur fringe around the hood. On the floor next to the chair are a pair on smaller pink and black necks and a black purse. I figure that she, by the assumption of the coat, shoes, and purse, is in the bathroom, so I stand at the counter quietly, waiting on her to return. I fiddle with my wallet, getting out my card to pay for it and my I.I.D., I scroll through on my phone and hook to the free Wi-Fi. Five minuets go by, then ten. At fifteen minuets, the phone starts ringing. I still had no idea where she was, and I had begun to get irritated. It had been a long day, and I wanted to get rested before I got up and drove home in the morning. After the phone stopped ringing and I started to get frustrated, I began to wander around the lobby and behind the counter shouting, Hello, is anyone here? as loudly as possible. The area behind the counter is an employee-only area. I venture back behind the counter, where a hallway leads to the back-of-house area connected to the offices, staff elevator, bathrooms, laundry, and the restaurant. I venture down the hallway shouting hello. Still no one answers. It is now 12.30 a.m. As I return to the counter and begin looking for a posted phone number for a manager or someone of authority, the phone rings, the cordless phone still laying next to the paper she had opened. Frustrated and exhausted, I answer the phone, hoping it's someone who could tell me where the woman is, who is supposed to check me in. It's not. It's another guest who had tried calling earlier for a wake-up call in the morning. I explain to the gentleman on the phone my situation and how I cannot help him. 
He states he is coming to the lobby to help me look for the girl at the counter. I had not found a number to call. Five minuets go by and the strange older man with odd glasses and long unkept hair comes into the lobby from the first floor hallway. At this point I had been behind the counter and had been shouting to the point I feared I may wake up other guests. I had wandered through the back area, the lobby and the front part of the restaurant, all while shouting and no one responded. This guy had given me the creeps and I was exhausted but on high alert there was an employee missing and a creepy guy who just happened to appear in the same time she is missing. Feeling nervous about this gentleman, I stay prepared for any strange behavior and keep myself at least arm's distance from him the entire time. I explain where I've looked, that I have yelled. At this point, I begin to go through what I call worst-case scenario preparation. This guy could have easily overpowered a small woman. I may be standing here with a crazy person. I keep my space and my back towards the main entry just in case. I am a grown man, just under six feet. I have had self-defense courses, and I have a CCW concealed carry weapon. After encountering a bear at a patient's house in the fall, I have no reason to believe I am in immediate trouble, but this guy just gives me the creeps. It is at this point I debate calling the cops. It's now 12.45 a.m., the gentleman tells me. Maybe she's in the bathroom, which I respond to that I had thought that myself, but I had walked by and yelled loudly when I walked through the back and no one responded. He insists we check the bathrooms. My red flag goes off and I put another foot or two of space between us as I let him lead us down the hallway to the employee bathroom. My heart and mind are racing at this point. Did this dude kill her? And now he's going to try to kill me? I start to worry about my safety as we go down a hallway that leads to small rooms and with one exit in and out, we reach the bathroom. He knocks and announces himself, then opens the door. The bathroom is empty. We check a few more rooms in the elevator and find nothing. We venture back to the lobby where I stand behind the counter looking for any phone number that could be a manager or supervisor. After about ten minutes, I find a number and someone answers. It's now 12.55 a.m. The half-asleep voice on the other end of the phone is the maintenance woman for the hotel. Confused as to who I am and why I am calling, I explain the situation as the creepy man stands on the other side of the counter, staring at me in a dead cold manner. The maintenance woman says she will be there in ten minutes or so. I hang up the phone. I walk around the counter, still confused, looking at her stuff there as if she just vanished. It's at this point I decide to wander towards the lobby or seating for the restaurant. Once in the doorway, I turn the corner and down at the end of the booths, there are a pair of legs hanging out of the booth. I had walked within 15 feet of there while checking around before the creepy guy showed up. I see her legs hanging and instantly the pit of my stomach turns sour and a sense of dread comes over me. Suddenly the creepy guy walks right up by me. Thinking the worst, I take a few quick steps away from him and down the row of booths in the dark restaurant. With him at the other end, I look in the booth where she is laying. She is maybe twenty and very pretty. I shake her foot. She doesn't respond. I shake again, saying, hey, nothing. 
It's at this moment the creepy guy starts down the booth that I finally feel I may need to defend myself. I kneel down to draw from my ankle holster as he quickly comes down the row of booths, and it's at this exact moment the girl wakes up and accidentally kicks me in the chest, knocking me gently on my ass and stopping Mr. Creepy in his tracks, also stopping me from drawing a weapon. She had been asleep. Mr. Creepy was just a guest. Moments later, the maintenance woman arrived, and by 11 a.m., I was in my room trying to decompress. When I was younger and stupider and going to college in the North Georgia mountains, my friends and I would go night hiking a lot on the trails near campus. I got pretty familiar with the area and being out in the wilderness at night in general, which probably made me too confident. One night the full moon was out and the weather was perfect, so visibility was crazy good. Everything was basically washed in dim blue light. I was slightly stoned and feeling adventurous, and I loved doing fun stuff alone, so I decided to go enjoy a night hike by myself. I took a flashlight, but this was around 2002, so no cell phone. I chose a super easy trail that was mostly flat or maybe a mile loop in pretty secluded area, but not exactly a national park or anything, very rural area. I didn't even need my flashlight for most of it and just hiked in the moonlight. It was actually a really cool, beautiful experience at first. At some point I started feeling uneasy, and maybe a millisecond later I heard a man's voice. It was coming from a good distance ahead of me, somewhere off in the woods, maybe from the right side of the trail. He was crying. I'm honestly an empathetic person. And 99.9% .9 of the time I hear someone crying. I want to comfort, help them in some way, but this time I felt sick in the stomach, like a dry panic attack, if that makes sense. I remember coming very close to calling out to him because my brain was trying to tell me he might be hurt, which was the only reason I hesitated. But it was like my body shut my voice down before I could say anything, and I knew I had to stay very quiet. He was sobbing like he'd just found out a loved one had died, but also gibbering and almost babbling, like he was less than a person. There was a shrillness to it under his crying like he was holding back a scream, but perpetually on and on, as if he'd been doing it all night. I remember it vividly, and my spine is tingling like crazy, even as I write this. It's hard to explain, but I knew deep down he wasn't right in the head. And nothing good would happen if he realized I was listening. I went back the way I came. It was like I had tunnel, hearing. And the only sound in the world was that crying. I was hyper, aware of everything else around me and beyond paranoid that I would snap a branch or snag my boot on something. I worried the man's crying would get louder if I wasn't paying razor-sharp attention, getting closer, or turn into an outraged crazy person scream. Thankfully, it just faded the further I got from it, and I made it back to my car. Still, I was convinced some wild-eyed hermit was going to rush out of the forest and bite me to death, right up to the second I locked my doors and got the F out of there. I finally had the rest of my panic attack on the drive back. I managed to park back at campus, and I just sat in the car, 
and collected myself. Adrenaline is powerful. I have never felt a shred of guilt about leaving that guy crying out in the woods in the dark. I know I was slightly stoned, but slightly is the key word there. I'm convinced to this day I was in very real danger that night. Definitely not as insane as most of the stories in threads like this, but sometimes I get that same sick feeling deep down whenever I wonder what might have happened if the moon been less bright, or if I'd been more responsible and I'd decided to use my flashlight even once. He'd have seen me for sure. I go out for walks very late at night, fairly often, so I've seen a few things. The creepiest, though, happened about two months ago. I left the house around 1, 30 a.m., and it started off as a normal walk. I wandered around the town till about 2 a.m. when I decided to go home. I was walking back the route I had came when I noticed a black van meander down the street. Didn't really pay too much attention to it, though. At first... I did pay attention, though, when I saw it slowly drive by me for a second time. I wasn't entirely sure it was the same van, though, so I just continued walking. But this time, I kept an eye out. And lo and behold, about ten minutes later, the same damn black van came down the street again. This time I knew for sure because it didn't have license plates. Now I was fairly scared, so I picked my pace up a little bit. When the van came around again this time, it stopped in the middle of the road, a few houses in front of me. I stopped, turned around, and booked it back in the other direction. I made a few turns onto different roads, and then ran right into someone's yard. I waited behind their fence, and the same van came down the street. I assumed that when they couldn't find me, they finally decided to foff. But I waited in that yard for about 20 minutes before I ran back to my house and practically threw myself through my bedroom window. I was a Navy sailor who went out to sea many times for weeks at a time. One of my jobs was being a lookout to spot boats, planes, things in the water or air pretty much and reported back to the ship. My lookout rotation could have me standing watch during the day or night, sometimes both, and it was during the nights where I was pretty afraid, especially if you were at the back of the ship alone. For anyone who hasn't been out in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night should realize you see many more lights in the sky than you would ever in a city. And on Navy ships, they like to have very little lights on at night, so standing watch around 1 a.m. feels very alien sometimes. And during the nights without a bright moon to help with your vision, you may as well be on a different planet. There was this one time I saw bright green color moving in the water slowly, and I didn't know what it was. My mind told me maybe it's a USO or, or something else. Eventually, I was told it was just plankton, but it sure looked freaky to someone who wasn't aware of the glowing plankton produces. Another time, me and another guy were standing watch together, and I decided just to look up during 2 a.m. and see what things I would come across the midnight sky. I would see meteors streak across the sky, but a couple of times there were bright lights moving slowly way out there. Perhaps a satellite, maybe who knows. 
but I stared for a good 20 minutes in the sky and encountered approximately 15 of those slow-moving lights in different areas of the sky, perhaps many millions of miles apart. Either way, those were the few times I saw for myself how vast space really is, and that there was so much unknowns out there that humans have yet to discover or explain.